You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for joining us for Food and Stuff. My name is Gretchen Miller. Today we're going to start off with a recipe for spigarello and a goat cheese scramble. If a super savory breakfast is your thing, this is for you. Spigarello stems are delicate and more like broccolini than less palpable kale stems, so you can roughly chop and cook the whole thing. Its broccoli-esque flavor is well-matched with rich eggs and tangy goat cheese. This from Goop.com. You're going to need two tablespoons of olive oil, one medium shallot, thinly sliced, one bunch of spigarello, kosher salt, one tablespoon of butter, five eggs beaten, three ounces of goat cheese crumbled, and Aleppo pepper. This is going to serve two to three. You're going to heat the olive oil in a nonstick pan over medium heat. Add the shallots and saute for about five minutes so they develop some golden color. Add the spigarello and a pinch of salt and stir to combine. Let that cook for another couple of minutes or until the leaves and stems are starting to get tender. Just before adding the beaten eggs, add the butter and let it melt in the pan. Pour the eggs all over the mixture in the pan and reduce the heat to medium-low. Stir gently and just before the eggs are set, maybe a minute and a half, sprinkle the goat cheese over the top and gently fold it in. Remove from the heat just as the eggs appear set and plate. Sprinkle a little more salt and Aleppo pepper on top and serve. Next recipe is going to be for pickled cabbage salad from smittenkitchen.com. I first discovered the peculiar subcategory of chopped raw vegetables called health salads some 14 years ago when a friend introduced me to the wonders of the prepared foods aisle at Zabar's. Even then, I found the idea of one type of salad being labeled healthy, while my other favorite in the same refrigerator case, the Mediterranean pepper salad with feta and olives, was, I don't know, something akin to a heart attack on a cracker. Somewhat eye-rolling, but I now realize that it was the coleslaw's salad mayo-free dressing that designed it such a lofty nutritional status. Regardless, ever stubborn, I did not eat it because it lacked much maligned mayo, because it was chock-full of folate-rich cabbage, or because it was branded wholesome, but because I liked it. Crunchy and bright, as good on day two as it is on day seven, it was the perfect light meal or side to a sandwich, and even though I lived nowhere near the store and found shopping at Zabar's, even on the slowest day, to be a shopping cart rammed into the back of my heels, level of annoying, though really I should know better than to pause between locals and their smoked fish counter, I was a loyal customer for life so long as they could keep providing me my lightly pickled cabbage fix. Plus, this was in my ovens are for sweater storage phase of my New York life. Why would I try to make it for myself when someone else was perfectly willing to do it for me? Flash forward seven years and a couple of careers... I wrote an article for NPR in 2007 about coleslaw, in which I reverse-engineered my Zabar's favorite. In the seven years since, I all but forgot about it until a cabbage salad from Russ and Daughters two weeks ago brought it all back. Because I'm obsessed with timing, part of me thinks this would be a better fit for January when fat-free, vegetable-rich austerity measures are the order of the month, 
But the thing is, with all these vegetables still going strong at local green markets, it's seasonal right now. Plus, do you know what's coming in the next few weeks? Butter and cream-drenched vegetables, stuffing, gravy, biscuits, every pie ever, and if you're lucky, a pumpkin cheesecake too. You're going to need a lifeboat, something you can have on hand in your fridge to break up the calorie stampede, and I vote for this. So here you go, pickled cabbage salad, inspired by the health salad at Zabar's. My primary change to this from my last version and from the versions I've had from the delis was the addition of celery seed. I added it on a whim, and we cannot get enough of the flavor. Just a little permeates the pickle mixture with a hint of celery without actually using celery, which can get a little beige after pickling. This is a flexible recipe, however. You can add actual celery slices if you wish, red onion, or a little red cabbage to create the inky, pinky, tangled look of the Russ and Daughters version, which has only a pinch of carrot and pepper strips in it and no cucumber. The carrots, cucumbers, and peppers that I use here are modeled after the Zabar's version. This will yield 9 to 10 cups, which shrinks to 7 to 8 cups after pickling. For the brine, you'll need 1.5 cups of white vinegar, 1.5 cups of water, one third cup of granulated sugar, one half teaspoon of celery seed, one tablespoon plus two teaspoons of kosher salt, plus more to taste. For the salad, you'll need one small head or two pounds of green cabbage, one red bell pepper, one carrot, I used only one half of my very thick one, and one Kirby cucumber. You're gonna mix the brine ingredients in the bottom of a medium bowl and set aside. Prepare your vegetables. Trim and core cabbage and slice thinly with a knife, food processor, slicing blade, or adjustable blade slicer, and then place in a large bowl. Core, seed, and thinly slice the red pepper. Peel and thinly slice or julienne the carrot. Thinly slice the cucumber. I quartered mine first, and then add vegetables to cabbage bowl. By the time you're done preparing the vegetables, the sugar and salt should in the pickling mixture have just should have dissolved and if not whisk a few more times until they do taste and adjust if you'd like it a little saltier i added one more teaspoon of kosher salt in the end pour the pickling brine over the vegetables and cover the bowl with a lid or plastic wrap refrigerate for one hour or up to one week and the salad becomes more pickled as it rests eat with everything and again, I'm going to make a note about salt. Not all salts are weighted equally. I used Morton brand, which for one tablespoon plus two teaspoons clocks in at 24 grams. If using table or fine sea salt, use only four teaspoons. Next, we're going to have a recipe for sticky sesame chicken wings. On the very long list of things that I'm convinced that other people do effortlessly, while I typically flail and fail in the face of which are dancing, running, walking from one room to another without forgetting what they were looking for, making dinner on a regular basis with a minimum of a brow sweat and complaining is near the top. It likely doesn't help that I often spend my cooking hours chasing some very specific idea, a star, a pretzely pretzel of what I want to cook next, and that this item may or may not amount to dinner, leading to countless days when I realize at 5 p.m., that I have an incoming hangry preschooler and very little plan for what to feed us. 
a domestic goddess I hope you never mistake me for. But on the worst of these days, we order sushi or pizza. On the best of these days, I find something that saves both the day and is actually declared a winner by all involved parties, and I can't wait to tell you about it, such as pasta with garlicky broccoli rabe or sizzling chicken fajitas. Last month, the late gourmet magazine came to my rescue, and not for the first time. Why did nobody tell me that roasted or grilled, if you've got one, chicken wings were the ultimate weekday night dinner savior? You cannot mess them up. They're done in just over 30 minutes in the oven. But even if you say left them in 20 minutes longer, they're just fine, which I know from experience. They take on the flavor of whatever you pour over them without requiring a multi-hour or overnight marinade. Because seriously, who plans that far ahead for a 30-minute meal? See above, uh, probably people who aren't me. And it turns out, if you've got the kind of 4.75-year-old that isn't usually inclined to embrace new foods, they may actually go berserk for what you think, what they think are baby drumsticks. They might eat a frightening amount. You might have to bite your tongue when this happens because you know by now it might never happen again. And then you can make them ne again next week when you forget to plan for dinner again. So here's the recipe, sticky sesame wings adapted barely from Gourmet Magazine. You can definitely mess with the proportions here. We've also enjoyed it with slightly more hoisin and half the honey. I think a little grated fresh ginger could be good in here as well as a dash or two of sriracha. We have this with rice. I'm currently enamored with this and this and there are links at smittenkitchen.com and roasted asparagus. If I hadn't waited until the last minute, I may have made this mango slaw with cashews and mint or the sugar snap flaw saw with the sesame miso dressing from TSKC. If you can't find wingettes, often sold as party wings, use regular chicken wings and, bit cup, and then cut off the tips from the chicken wings with kitchen shears or a large heavy knife. You can use them for stock and then have the wings at the joint. This is going to yield four main course servings. You'll need three pounds of chicken wingettes or chicken wings, one large garlic clove minced, one teaspoon of coarse or kosher salt plus more to taste, two tablespoons of soy sauce, two tablespoons of hoisin sauce, two tablespoons of mild honey. I often have halved this. Uh, one teaspoon of Asian sesame oil, a pinch of cayenne or a dash of sriracha, one and a half tablespoons of sesame seeds, lightly roasted and to toasted, actually, and one scallion, finely chopped. You're going to heat the oven to 425 degrees Fahrenheit, line a large shallow baking pan with foil, and lightly oil it. You're going to stir the wings together with the garlic, the salt, soy, hoisin, honey, sesame oil, and cayenne, or sriracha, until coated. Spread the wings and any sauce that fell to the bottom of the bowl out on the prepared baking pan in one layer. Roast, turning over once until cooked through about 35 minutes. Transfer the wingettes to a large serving bowl and toss with the sesame seeds and the scallion. If you end up with a puddle of sauce in the bottom of your baking pan, I did the one time that they were more tightly packed in a dish, 
After removing the wings, you can pour the extra sauce into a saucepan and reduce it until thick, and then stir it over the roasted wings before adding the sesame seeds and scallion. Enjoy. Next recipe, turkey pesto meatballs and orecchietti. <laughs> my apologies to those who are Italian out there with my pronunciation of the various pastas. But as long as we are a full six days before fall begins, I'm allowed to sneak in one more zucchini recipe. I would be, it would be right here in my contact, contract if I had one, above the expectation of iron shoelaces and below that of a daily slice of chocolate biscuit cake. I'd actually intended this recipe for July and the eggplant in Voltini for August, but July was so hot and August wasn't much better, I couldn't bring myself to publish recipes that required oven time, so I waited for a better moment to arrive. Our patience has been rewarded. This brothy, late, summery bowl of pasta and meatballs is absolutely perfect for right now, with the kind of sunny, warm days that require a morning and evening cardigan i.e. the very best weather on this earth, full stop. We'll start with a sheet pan of ground turkey meatballs, but we add pesto to them. We'll roast them on a sheet pan with some vegetables that go well with pesto. I choose zucchini, but others will work. And while they roast, we'll boil some orecchietti, whose shape acts like tiny meatball catcher mitts. And then we'll put everything together in a brothy pesto puddle in a bowl that might be a fork thing, might be a spoon thing, or might be both. I see no reason to choose. So, book tour. I promised you a Smitten Kitchen Keepers book tour announcement this week, but something's come up, something good, and we're going to need one more week to get everything in order. I can't wait to share everything with you. I hope we get to hang out this fall and winter. So, turkey, pesto, meatballs, and Orecchietti. This is the um, recipe itself. It's going to serve four. It'll take one hour, and the source is Smitten Kitchen. If you use a bouillon base for broth, such as Better Than Bouillon, you could replace the two cups of broth with two additional cups of pasta cooking water and add the bouillon to it. So that's your choice. Um, first, you'll need olive oil and then one pound of ground turkey. One half cup of panko or other plain dry breadcrumb, one cup of basil pesto, homemade or store bought, divided, four garlic cloves, minced and divided, two tablespoons of grated parmesan, plus more to serve, one tablespoon water, kosher salt, freshly ground pepper, one large egg, one pound of zucchini or summer squash sliced into one half or one quarter inch half moons one pound of dried orecchietti, two cups of chicken or vegetable broth. You're going to heat your oven to 450 degrees Fahrenheit and then coat a large sheet pan with oil or line it with nonstick foil for easier cleanup. To prepare the meatballs, you're going to combine the turkey, panko, one quarter cup of the pesto, half the minced garlic, two tablespoons of grated Parmesan, water, one teaspoon of kosher salt, many grinds of black pepper, and the egg in a large bowl with a fork, mixing until just combined. Coat your palms lightly with olive oil and use a heaped tablespoon or one and a half tablespoon scoop to measure the meatballs. 
rolling them briefly in your palms to smooth them and space them out on the prepared sheet pan. Next, prepare the zucchini. You're going to toss the zucchini in a big bowl with one to two tablespoons of olive oil, one teaspoon of kosher salt, and lots of black pepper. Scatter the zucchini around the meatballs on the tray. Then roast the meatballs and zucchini. Transfer the tray to the oven and roast for 15 to 18 minutes until the meatballs are cooked through. For better color on top, transfer meatballs and vegetables to your oven's broiler for three to five minutes. Meanwhile, make the orecchietti in a large pot of well-salted water. Cook your pasta until one minute shy of done so it still has a little bit of bite left to it. Then drain the pasta, reserving one cup of pasta water and up to three cups if using the bouillon option. And make a brothy pesto and assemble. This is the next step. You're going to heat the empty pasta pot over medium-high heat and add two tablespoons of olive oil and two garlic cloves. Cook the garlic until just golden at the edges, about one minute, and then add two cups of broth and bring it to a simmer. Add a half cup of remaining pesto and stir just until warmed. Then transfer the meatballs and zucchini to a brothy pesto in the pot and add the drained pasta. Cook everything together, tossing to evenly coat for one to two minutes. Then distribute the meatballs, zucchini, and orecchietti to wide serving bowls, ladling over any pesto broth left in the pot. And then finish each bowl with an additional spoonful of remaining pesto, more salt and pepper, and grated Parmesan cheese. And then eat right away. Next recipe, cherry cornmeal upside down cake. This is the cake in which I did everything wrong. It was impromptu on a week that I had been trying to embrace salads, vegetables, and water, or all those things I got too little of on Alex and Deb's Central European vacation. But I'm a sucker for any and all upside-down cakes, and this one sounded so good, my resolve was immediately weakened. Cherries are not in season around here, not even close. I said if I couldn't find frozen cherries, I'd take it as a sign and I'd skip it, but then Alex went to the store for me, and he's so good and so eager to get everything on the list that he bought fresh ones that cost so much money. I cannot discuss it in mixed company, but it was still really sweet of him. And I do not own a cherry pitter. Uh, I have looked at them, marveled at the extra cute one at Williams-Sonoma last summer, but that time, like all the other times before it, I determined such a purchase fussy and of little use. And Having and pitting cherries took forever, a forever I would happily have swapped for a $10 limited-use gadget. <laughs> so, number five, I do not own a cast iron or oven-proof skillet that is 10 or 11 inches, though this, too, I have often discussed buying one, but the thought of lugging it home always talks me out of it. So, number six, I had worked until 7 p.m. on Tuesday, swam a mile at the gym, got home after 9 p.m. and still determined that I would have time to bake this cake, cherry pitting included. I hate rushing through recipes. Something always goes horribly wrong, and I forget an egg or the sugar and swear that I'll never rush again. Yet, this is exactly what I did. It turned out I was out of brown sugar. Save one rock of a chunk, I was completely unable to soften. So what then? People, I grated it. That's what I did. 
I decided that since I didn't have the right size oven-proof skillet and lacked a 10-inch cake pan that wasn't an always leaky spring form, I would use this as my perfect excuse to finally use my Marianne cake pan. But here's the thing with Ms. Mary, the fruit frosting curd cream that you put on top. Yeah, it's supposed to go on top of a baked, not unbaked cake. I realized this after I've already dumped the cherries in and decided to just run with it. I mean, once you've already grated brown sugar, I think it's safe to say that you're probably not going to get too hung up on a cake pan that pushes out all the out-of-season cherries into an an unattractive channel. So, (laughs) guess what? Despite my every effort to ruin this cake, it is still killer good. The cake is light and fluffy. The cornmeal meal is minimal enough to be interesting, not aggravating. The cherries, even the out-of-season ones in average shape, are amazing. Their combination with brown sugar, balsamic, and butter is a stroke of genius. I wouldn't change a thing, not one single step, well, <clears throat> except the eight above that I just listed. But, oh, and two more for good measure and a nice even number. Number nine, <laughs> intent on getting at least one pretty picture of an ugly cake. I flipped it out onto my Martha Stewart Collection 12-inch white cake stand, despite being fully aware that the cake would be very sticky, and B, that I wanted to be able to pack it up and bring it to Jocelyn's the next day. Trying to remove the still warm 40, cake 45 minutes later, it ended up in eight pieces, at least two of them still stuck to the plate, soaking in the sink. So, number 10. As if I couldn't have possibly done one more thing that evidenced my compromised logic that evening, I succumbed to a slice of it at 12 a.m., and do you know what happened? I was so hopped up on sugar I couldn't get to sleep until after 1 a.m., but it was totally worth it. Well, actually, I woke up the next morning with a sore throat and a stuffy nose, and I ended up missing the barbecue anyway. Ah, now we're swimming in quickly depleting way too delicious cherry cornmeal upside down cake. It's still worth it. Here's the recipe. Cherry cornmeal upside down cake serves eight, takes two hours and 30 minutes, and the source is Bon Appetit, June of 2008. This recipe got a light tune-up in 2019, simplified directions that will require fewer bowls, hooray, and added weights, so this means that we can make it more often. You'll need 12 tablespoons of unsalted butter at room temperature, divided, one quarter cup of packed dark brown sugar, two teaspoons of balsamic vinegar, three cups of pitted fresh bing or another dark sweet cherry, one and a quarter cups of all-purpose flour, one quarter cup of yellow cornmeal, ideally stone ground, medium grind, two teaspoons of baking powder, one quarter teaspoon of fine sea or table salt, two large eggs separated, one quarter teaspoon of cream of tartar, one cup of granulated sugar, three quarters teaspoon of vanilla extract, and a half cup of whole milk. You're gonna heat to 350 degrees Fahrenheit, combine one quarter cup of the butter with brown sugar and vinegar in a 10 to 11 inch oven proof skillet with two inch high sides. Stir over medium and heat until the butter melts and the sugar dissolves. It'll take about two minutes. And then increase the heat to high 
Add cherries and bring to a simmer, then remove from the heat. You're going to whisk flour, cornmeal, baking powder, and salt in medium bowl to blend. And using an electric mixer, beat the egg whites in another medium bowl until foamy. Add cream of tartar and beat until all whites are stiff but not dry. Place the egg yolks, half cup of the remaining butter, sugar, and vanilla in a large bowl and beat until pale and fluffy about three minutes. Add the flour mixture alternatively with milk in two additions each, beating just until blended and occasionally scraping down the sides of the bowl. Using clean dry beaters, using a rubber spatula, fold one and a quarter of whites into the batter to lighten sauce slightly. Fold in the remaining whites in three additions. The batter will be thick. Spoon batter in dollops over cherries in the skillet and then spread evenly with the offset spatula to cover the cherries. Bake cake until the top is golden brown and the tester inserted into the center comes out clean about 45 minutes. Thank you for joining us for Food and Stuff. My name is Gretchen Miller. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.